And we are back with May 2021 edition of Ladies First. I'm Corey, joined by Taylor. Hello. And we're talking about ballroom culture today. (laughs) Yeah, so you all might be wondering why we're talking about ballroom culture on a podcast about like queer women in the internet and queer women's culture. Well, the starters, trans women factor a lot into barroom culture, which is directly connected to drag culture and history. And also because there are female drag kings who work in ballroom. So it's all interconnected. And there's just a lot of history, especially when it comes to like appropriation, race relations, um, Latino and black community, gay visibility, transgender, lesbian, bisexual, queer in general. So there's a lot of intersectionality. Definitely. And ballroom really reflects how like gender and race and class all come together and how ballroom is really this expression of survival and empowerment and self-expression for communities that have been historically and currently left behind to say the least. And so like drag culture, like drag as we understand it, you know, goes back, like it is shown up repeatedly in queer men's culture and trans women's culture because of the way gender and sexuality has been understood. Queer men and trans women have shared a lot of history and space. Um, But those spaces have not been the most mindful of race. And so, you know, we've had drag elements of drag in different queer cultures for a long time, but ballroom culture, as we understand it, really only goes back to the 70s. So with drag, we had Molly houses in like 18th century England. And then in the 19th and early 20th century in the United States, we had these huge drag balls, like in major cities like Harlem and like New York City with the Harlem balls. You had in San Francisco where queer people would throw these underground parties where they could dress in drag and experiment and have fun and just really just be. Eventually that stuff just started to really professionalize. And in the 1960s, um, you saw the shift. So in 1967, there was this big drag queen like competition that was actually being filmed for a documentary called The Queen that came out the following year. And Andy Warhol, I think, was a judge. It was a big deal and provided a lot of visibility to this particular community at the time and subculture. Um, and Crystal Abasia, who is this Black trans woman, um, came either in second or third at this competition. And it inspired her to break away from the mainstream white drag culture because of the racism that was prevalent in the community. Um, There's towards the end of the documentary, a very famous scene where she calls out the host of the event, you know, you know, essentially the host favored the white protege for the award over Crystal Abasia. And Crystal Abasia is very clear that it had to do with her being black, you know. 
And so this is a good example of how, even though all queer people are subjugated, white queer people still bring racism into effect and on sometimes best at being mindful, not. Mm. Now, as far as I think like the black community goes in particular, you can really track like drag or ballroom all the way back to what were they called cakewalks? Yes. So this is very something interesting I learned. So before I dive into like ball culture, I want to talk about the stuff that led up to it. So um, there's something called the cakewalk, which is this like walk dance thing that really developed in pre-Civil War America, where you'd have plantation owners do these really inappropriate and appropriative moves and gestures. They're basically mocking slaves on their plantations, the enslaved people. And then the enslaved people reappropriated all this culture and would eventually like have little competitions, the the white slave owners thought it was cool. And they, if you won the competition, you got a cake as a prize. And so cakewalking became this very integral part of the subculture of African-Americans. And it is very much rooted in minstrel culture because minstrel culture in the 19th century is where we got a lot of stereotypes about black people that we see in media today because Minstrel culture is where blackface really showed up. It's where white people mocked and appropriated African-American based dance and gestures. And so the ministry of black Americans was basically reappropriation of their cultures, as well as them taking wealthy white culture and subverting it for their own use. So, you know, it's this idea, you know, we are kept out of wealth and power. So we're going to dress really beautifully and make these, do these wonderful shows and really like create this fantasy for ourselves and subvert this power. And these elements were very much used in drag culture where you have these traits of minstrel shows and menstrual culture being combined with drag so you'd have queer men and trans women doing these cakewalks and wearing these beautiful gowns in these secret like parties and balls and so all of that is like bubbling in the 19th century and early 20th century and actually the earliest known person to call themselves like a drag queen or specifically a queen of drag was a former slave who lived in DC in the 1880s and 1890s. And I'm very sad that the, so basically it's, the book is being written and won't be coming out until next year, but it was about a man named William Dorsey Swan, the queen of drag who um, was very like politically engaged. He once wrote to president Grover Cleveland asking to be pardoned because as a queer person, he dealt with a lot of police harassment when he would host these private parties and a lot of elements from that version of drag culture where you'd have 
queer black people getting together, dressing up, dancing, you see a lot of that like cultural elements and like even vocabulary starting to filter into what would become ballroom culture. So even though ballroom culture goes back as we understand it to the 70s, it actually has a history that goes back about a hundred years or even more arguably. And I wanna jump in really quick and re-emphasize what Taylor's talked about of like, this really is an essence of um, cultural survival. And it's taking aspects of a lot of black diaspora culture. And it's also subverting aspects of, you know, white slave owner culture. And it's creating something for the black community at that time, which unfortunately, as we know today, because cultural appropriation is a thing and has been a thing, anything that the black community does, and I'm going to get in so much hot water for this, anything that the black community does, the white community eventually decides is cool and wants to copy and cannot let them have anything of their own, really. It, it's just commodification of cultural capital. And it's been, it's been happening since we were a slave-owning country, ever since we were a slave-owning country. It, I mean, it happened even before with the Native American tribes. So there is a long colonialist racist history of white dominant culture um, appropriating and commodifying anything that it might deem quote unquote cool or attractive of, oh, well, this is nice. And the way it, it's gone about is it just wholesale steals and strips of any cultural context or meaning. Like you'll see this with white people dressing up in war bonnets for Halloween, completely ignoring that those are sacred symbols that have to be earned. You see it with white people taking, um, African American Black dialogue um, phrases. Uh, I know there's this thing called concept called digital blackface where we react always using black media. Like, yes. So, I mean, it's not new. And unfortunately, it's still very rampant. And I think a lot of us do that without even realizing that we're engaging in this practice. You know, how many people who are not black respond to something with a black gift for a specific reaction? Yeah, I once read an article on that and it just got really me thinking and it's like, I tend to use Taylor Swift gifts for reactions anyway, but I was like, I'm definitely going to focus on using Taylor Swift gifts as for reaction material because it's like, even if we're not conscious of these ideas are still embedded into our subconscious because we're exposed to them every day and we're raised in this culture. And, you know, the way culture, like the way as a white person, you know, I wasn't really raised to think about these things growing up. And it's like, especially because there's something about American culture to me that is so disconnected from culture anyway like when I was a kid in high school and I'd go to like like world culture day um so in my classmates would have these wonderful presentations because they were children and grandchildren of immigrants who were very connected to their 
ancestral cultures. And it just was very highlighted to me just how different American culture, I think, is to a lot of cultures, partially because we cannibalize a lot. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's like, even if you use a phrase there, I mean, I've used phrases that I've just heard on Twitter that I don't know where they're from. And somebody's like, oh, by the way, that's, you know, that's from black community culture that you probably shouldn't use. I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. Because I just, you know, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. The important thing is, is that you listen to who is telling you, hey, probably don't want to use that and then just stop using it. Definitely. Um, I think a good example of how cultural appropriation looks is people pointed this out online, but like the Nightmare Before Christmas is a good example of someone thinking a culture looks cool and then taking aspects of it and repurposing it for their own thing without actually like talking to the person who is a part of that culture and trying to understand like the context of the culture and the context of these symbols and the holidays and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, and again, and I think that's why we really wanted to talk about ballroom because there's a, an entire generation of people who might not know, like they, they hear Vogue and anything associated with that. And they think it comes from a white lady. They don't know the history that it's from the queer community, specifically it's from the black and Latino community, queer communities. It, this didn't start with a white lady there's a long history from this and it originated as a way of cultural survival and the means of just overwhelming oppression. Yeah, there was a great quote on Black minstrelry and how Black people, Black Americans have historically used imitation to survive, you know, imitating white culture and reappropriating their own culture to create new meaning. And as one writer put it, African-American minstrelry was imitation with a vengeance. And I think that's just very poignant and kind of gets at the point that this stuff, there's, in, there's intention to this. There is, um, you know, Crystal Abasia was a black trans woman in the late 60s and early 70s when she and Lottie Labasia formed the Royal House of Labasia because they were experiencing discrimination from the white drag, mainstream white drag culture and community and wanted to form a space where they could express themselves freely and be celebrated for who they are and uplift women like them. And this, you know, this stems from, I'm gonna jump back a little bit historically in the timeline of, you know, this just stems from where we started like, you know, we talked about cakewalks and then, you know, the late 1890s, there were drag balls. And then you get to the 1920s and the Harlem Renaissance drag balls. And we start seeing this to kind of really flourish. And every time you see it starting to flourish on the verge of really becoming its own, you, you know, white people swoop in. Yes. Like, for example, in during the Harlem Renaissance, which was a very pro-queer place, in the United States, you know, there were actual marriages between gay people and stuff. For example, lesbian marriages. You would have white people, queer or not, basically going on trips into Harlem as almost this mini form of colonialism where they're going in, they are taking in the sights and enjoying 
this culture while also remaining distant from it and seeing it as almost like this exotic trip. And this is part of a history of, you know, slumming tours, which started in the 19th century and went into the early 20th century, where you'd have privileged people like of privileged class, middle to upper class, usually white, going into racialized, poorer districts and just looking at people doing the, going about their lives or going to these quote unquote seedy clubs and getting their kicks off being like in sin while not while being able to leave it. And it's just like this exoticization of different cultures, minoritized cultures and white people, you know, get like enjoying being bad for a night in a, in a way and then getting to go home and being like, yep, this is cool. I got to see the poor person in their poor life, you know? And to an extent, I mean, that still really happens today. You look in larger cities, um, you know, like obviously cities are still largely racialized if they haven't been gentrified and you'll see more affluent or even hipsterish or whatever you'll you'll see packs of white people swoop down to experience the quote-unquote authenticity that's the new keyword it's like it's so authentic now and I'm like so you're still touring doing this whole little oh they're so exotic oh it's so authentic it's so I'm like uh, it's worth a trip for me to post about I'm like you're still kind of making a zoo about other people whether they want to be part of your whole little thing or not I mean it's it's I keep saying white people in this episode and I, I know it probably sounds like we're really coming down on white people. And I kind of am. I mean, there's stuff that we have got to be more mindful about that. We are just not either because we are ignorant and maybe this episode is a wake up call for you or because you don't want to deal with it, in which case suck it up. There is a lot of, I mean, Ramadan's over. So I'm going to swear again. There's a lot of bullshit that's still going on. And a lot of shit that the white community has appropriated from communities of color. Why are we talking about ballroom on this episode? Because there's an entire generation of people who don't know what ballroom is and think it started with Madonna. And that is not okay. I have an example of a white person not knowing what ballroom is because I'm not familiar with Madonna's work either. So I just did not know what ballroom was, period. Like, I learned about ballroom because I heard philosophy tube mentioned the word vogue in one of her videos and i looked it up and i was like oh okay kind of know what that is but not quite certain and that's partially because our education system's like what is history that isn't about white people Martin Luther king and what is history about queer people it's like then it's doubly compounded because it is not being taught and when it is when people are learning about they're usually learning about an appropriated version of it well, that movie Stonewall that came out a few years ago that had a white straight actor playing a white fictional gay man. And, you know, popular history says Marsha P. Johnson, if not the one to throw the first stone, was one of the ones. She was right up there. Completely removed her from that and had the conventionally attractive, not overly feminine white gay boy be the one who started Stonewall. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it also erases Stormy De La Vare, I think is how you pronounce the last name, who was a male impersonator, but she, black lesbian who is believed to have been the one who got the riot started because she was being arrested and being hit by a cop and was calling out for help, basically, and was like, aren't you going to do something to the crowd of people? So, like, Stonewall is completely based in people of color who are queer in one way or the other who were tired of police harassment who fought back. And, yeah. But it goes back to, again, of when white people tried to tell these stories, the actual people of color who were centered to them are decentered. Definitely. Or erased. Um, or even there's just shady stuff like, okay, so I've talked about on Ladies First, I think it was a couple years ago, about the documentary Paris is Burning, which is very specifically about ballroom culture. Well, the New York Times ran an article, and we're going to have a link to it in the show notes if you go check the article out on our site. Um, and it was Paris is burning, and it's now Paris has burned. And it talks about how ballroom culture has been completely commodified by dominant white culture, and nobody cared about it anymore, so it slowly died out. And then it talks about you know the director, Jenny Livingston. So they made that documentary on a $500,000 budget and then they paid about $175,000 for filming rights, like all the other, you can do this stuff. So they're in it for about $675,000. The documentary goes on for at the time makes an obscene amount of money for a documentary it makes about $4 million. And most of the people who were actually involved with the film, like, the subjects received a couple hundred dollars at best. Yeah, it's really messed up to say the least. And that's another way to perpetuate inequality is because it's like doubly stealing because you not only essentially appropriate another culture for someone else's gaze, you also then not paying the people, many of whom were struggling in one way or the other because I know that the ballroom culture was really hit by HIV and AIDS at the time because this was in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the women who was central to that, um, let me reopen the article really quick. In 1993, Angie Extravaganza, she was one of the principal um, subjects. Well, she died at 27. When that article in 1993 was being written, it was about her funeral, you know, but Mm -hmm. it's an example of we used it, we got our entertainment from it, we moved on from anything involving the subjects of the community after that. Never had a thought about it again, outside of the voguing and all the fun stuff, but we made, that became white culture thing. That became white funsies. Who cares about everything else that goes along with it? We don't want to think about that. That's not fun. That's 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 depressing. That yep. makes us have to admit things that we don't want to admit about ourselves. Yes, and a huge part of being a better white ally is learning to be uncomfortable and work through the uncom- feeling of uncomfortability. Um, like I know there's this one black activist whose name, Rachel Cargill, I think, who has talked about 
you know, having to being done with comforting women, white women who start crying from guilt. And it's like, a black person should not have to comfort a white person who's crying because they feel guilty because of systemic racism. You know, they should not have to do that emotional labor. Part of being a better person, being a better ally is dealing with the feeling comfortable when you're being, having to address the privilege you have in life that you got a lot of because your skin color, your gender, your able-bodiedness, whatever. And I made sure to include a list of resources on our site on like ways to be a better ally and to be more mindful of other cultures and communities and people and how to improve, particularly in the context of race. And if you're a white person and you're wanting to feature these communities, you know, at the time Madonna had, if, if she's to be believed, had genuinely wanted to showcase this culture, but then it became Madonna's vogue and you didn't see her really from what I could see when I went back to look of being like, no, 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 no. This is from the queer community or Jenny Livingston with Paris is burning. So, I mean, and she, she was not, she was a queer woman, but she was white. And she was saying, oh, well, everybody thinks I live on a mansion in Long Island. And the only thing that's changed for me now is I used to be behind three months on rent and now I can pay my rent every month. Well, I mean, that's great for you, but what about the people you said were going to get a little more money after this came out? Definitely, especially like with, so for ballroom culture, it's set up so there's like a house as a family. So you have like house of extravaganza, house of labasia. And there's like a mother who's a maternal figure, whether it's like a very feminine gay man or a trans woman, they're usually a person of rank and respect. And part of the reasons they have these like houses with family units built into them is because there's so many queer youth of color who are homeless or otherwise struggling economically, financially, who need that support and need that housing. Like one of the big things Marsha P. Johnson did in her life was co-found STAR, which was an organization devoting to making, helping trans youth of color have home, have homes because housing is a huge issue for that subgroup. And so it's like, Jenny Livingston, great that you can pay rent, but if, this, if the subjects of your film who make, got you that money aren't, then like, what do you, you know? Even if it was just like, hey, there's, I can only pay you a few hundred dollars more. That's still more than the nothing burger you gave them after the film came out. It's an ongoing problem. It is. If you're, if you are a white creative person and you are just bound and determined that you are going to make a show, make a movie, make a whatever around a culture that is not yours. And especially if it's not white culture, then you need to be honestly in good faith consult. I mean, I, I don't think you need to be necessarily doing it, but you need to go get consultants from that community. You need to pay them fairly and you need to listen to them when they're telling you you're doing some BS. Yes, definitely. And you should be mindful of the fact that promoting an, another artist is great, but if you can pay someone who is a part of your creative process, you should pay them because 
I know, for example, a lot of drag queens today struggle with, you know, events, people don't pay them. It's like, oh, we're just, you're getting paid through promotion. Promotion. Yeah, exposure. It's like exposure is not going to pay my rent or enable me to buy my groceries. You know, if you want to be a better storyteller and more importantly, a better person, you got to like material support, material, you know, money is better than kind words in many respects. So if you're going to... Kind words are nice, but they don't pay the rent. I'm just like, let's just strip it down to that. Definitely. And in these these complicated, difficult times, direct material support, if you're a creator using another culture is more important than ever because it's a pandemic and the economy is still in recovery and the world's on fire and people need help. I mean, that's all it is to it. A, I don't necessarily think you still need to be going forward with the project. If you are going to go forward with the project, again, find members of that community and hire them. Hire them in all aspects of what you're doing creatively. Pay them a fair wage. And then when they start telling you, you need to do this and this and this, then do this and this and this. I haven't watched Pose myself, but I know about him. Pose is this TV show that um, Billy Porter is involved in. And one of the We're big things- We're not gonna talk about Pose because we just, uh, Janet Mock recently had an incident at one of, the, I think it was like the cast rat party or something like that, where she was also like, she's only getting paid, like not nearly enough for oh. being an executive producer and writer. They're not, she alleged that they're not getting paid enough. I mean, she also went on another like personal issue tangent, which is not really germane to the topic here, but even on a show like Pose, where you are supposedly being able to have creators tell their own stories, they're still not apparently getting paid peanuts. I did not know that. And that sucks. It's like, (laughs) it's a lot about so many things that on a show that is literally uh, depicting like fictional stories about this community and subculture and brings in a member within that community that it still does not financially compensate that said person. It's ridiculous. It's terrible and I hate it. I mean, so basically like, this is a shorter episode because there's only so many ways we can say don't be a don't be an asshole and don't yeah. appropriate from other ethnic communities and cultural communities and if you decide and put your big britches on that you're still going to do it then you need to do xyz definitely i know that often with you know being on book twitter something that often is being discussed with diversity in literature is sensitivity readers that you know having someone who's is from that community whose specific job is to look at the material and think about its potential implications because there are things that, for example, me as a white person that I could, like a story I could be writing and a character I could create and I do create a character in a certain way and someone from that community could be like, hey, you, this could come across as X, Y, Z. And I'd be like, oh, thank you for pointing that out. I did not realize that because, you know, white people don't have to think about certain implications and how things could come across the way other people do because mm-hmm. we create these stereotypes so and they aren't about us so it's like why would we think about them basically 
basically do your research. If there are big cultural zeitgeists, like maybe just be aware that they're probably not entirely white created and do some research into where they come from. They'll probably wind up being surprised at how much of a fascinating complex history they have and hopefully make you a little more cognizant of kind of how sad it really is. They're being stripped of all of that history just because it's the new fun white predominant culture thing to be saying and parroting at the moment. Agreed. So yeah, it's a more serious episode this time. Um, Our next episode will probably not be quite so serious, (laughs) but this is something that has been brewing for a while. Um, And we were kind of wanting to get this off our chest because it's also like neither of us are black and we feel like it shouldn't be up to just the black community to tell non-black members of like this shit isn't okay stop doing it at some point like those of us who are not black need to be telling our own community members sit down stay back in your lane stop doing the thing they need to take several seats yes so stop doing the thing basically that's our, that's our entire thing stop doing the thing and look up the stuff you're saying look up the stuff you're consuming be mindful about where it's coming from because there's probably a lot of history behind it that's being erased before it gets to you for your consumption. Also go check out the links we have in our written article on our site for more information about ballroom culture, because it really is fascinating. Definitely. And totally look up Crystal Abasia and I totally recommend watching her scenes in the Netflix, the documentary, the queen. She just comes across such a strong, like strong, passionate woman. And I think it's important to really uplift that ballroom culture. As we know, it started with a black trans woman speaking out against racism in her industry. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much going to wrap it up for us this time. Like I said, we will have plenty of links for you to check out. um, And we encourage you to do so. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts. On the Fundamentals Network, obviously, we have Ladies First. We also have Cannon Fodder, All Bark, No Dice, Right to Survive. We have our weekly TTRPG live play, Fae Forge Academy. We actually have a new one coming up called Anime Attaché, where newbies are getting introduced to anime series for the first time and reacting to them. So that should be fun. And we also have Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. Taylor, did I forget someone? Um, so Toyo Splendor, and that's Haram. Oh, wow. I just forgot two of my own podcasts. Totally <laughs> yes. okay. Uh, Satorial Splendor, and we also have That's Haram. So we have plenty of podcasts for you guys to choose from. If you want to dive down that rabbit hole, I recommend all of them. They're fun. They're broad, broad depth of topics. So feel free to check those out. Taylor, thank you for joining me today. Thank you again for having me. I was happy to help. And for the rest of you, stay safe. Make sure you're getting vaccinated if you're able to, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.